This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. So we're here with Wharton Finance Professor Nikolai Rusinov to talk about his paper, Commodity Trade and the Carry Trade, A Tale of Two Countries. Welcome to Knowledge at Wharton, Professor. Thank you very much. So tell us about your paper. What's it all about? So um, I work in the area of international finance, international asset pricing, which tries to understand uh, the you know, determinants of uh, security prices in global financial markets, and that includes uh, exchange rates, uh, sort of determination of currency prices, as well as uh, of interest rates and, uh, and other kind of relevant uh, financial variables. And when one of the kind of big puzzling questions in this area of uh, research uh, relates to what is known as a carry trade uh, strategy in international financial markets or currency markets, which basically says that if you uh, invest in a high interest uh, rate country, uh, country's currency or high yielding currency and uh, finance that investment, say, by borrowing in a uh, low interest rate currency, on average, you make money. You earn a positive uh, uh, return. Uh, even though, of course, it's not it's not riskless, it's not it's not risk free. You are exposed to risk because of the currency fluctuations. Um, on average, those fluctuations don't wash out this difference in uh, in interest rates. And this is now kind of as a carry trade strategy because carries uh, what we call uh, this uh, interest rate differential. And this is a very well known uh, kind of fact in the data, and uh, many people have worked on it, including. Uh, including myself. Um, what we do in this paper, uh, we try to look at you know, the determinants of uh, this carry trade uh, strategy and its profitability, and we do that by looking at specific countries or and currencies involved. So if we think of a typical uh, carry trade strategy, we're typically thinking of a strategy that goes long, say, the Australian dollar or New Zealand dollar, which are typical high-interest-bearing uh, currencies, and uh, short Japanese yen or Swiss franc, basically borrowing in countries where interest rates are historically are historically very low, like Japan and, and, and Switzerland. And to some extent these days, uh, that would be the Eurozone also. Um, now, what differentiates these countries fundamentally uh, is the fact that they have kind of very different structure of their uh, production and, and international trade, their imports and exports. Uh, Australia and New Zealand are uh, primarily exporters of, kind of basic commodities like, say, you know, iron ore or natural gas and so on, whereas uh, these historically low interest rate uh, countries such as uh, Switzerland or Japan are typically exporters of kind of sophisticated manufactured goods, especially, you know, think of Japan with cars or you know, Switzerland with, with watches or uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, and they typically import the bulk of their, uh, of their commodities. So we asked the question, does this kind of difference in uh, fundamentals of, uh, of the country's uh, economies help explain the difference in their interest rates and all kind of historically and also the fact that 
this interest rate differential is, so is associated with what we would call a risk premium, uh, meaning a compensation for bearing risk that shows up as, a, as an average return earned by investors uh, who are exposed to this risk. And what we found, uh, both theoretically and, uh, and empirically, is that there is a, there is a reason uh, to think that these commodity uh, currencies, the currencies of countries with high interest, rate rate, uh, interest rates, uh, would be more risky uh, to an investor in global financial markets than uh, currencies of the commodity of importers and exporters of manufactured goods, such as uh, Japan and uh, Japan and Switzerland. And basically, the, the idea is pretty straightforward because uh, we know the commodity uh, countries' currencies co-move with the prices of, uh, of commodities those countries export. That's why they're called or often referred to as commodity currencies. It's not surprising that uh, the Australian dollar or New Zealand dollar would, uh, would uh, go up when commodity prices go up and go down when commodity prices go down. Well, if we think about kind of the global economy and the global economic cycle, well, commodity prices globally will go up in the times of kind of global expansion, as like, uh, like we experienced in the early 2000s, and they really kind of massively fall uh, during that global economic downturns, again, as we saw during the, uh, the, uh, the Great Recession and kind of the global financial crisis. And that would make those currencies particularly, particularly risky. We also see that uh, currencies of uh, these sophisticated manufacturing good producers, such as uh, Japan or, or Switzerland, actually appreciate in, in downturns. So they kind of act as a hedge uh, against uh, these global uh, bad economic conditions. And uh, that tells you that it's not surprising to expect a risk premium um, that would be earned by investors who are willing to bear this risk of investing in these very cyclical commodity currencies, such as, uh, you know, say, Australia and New Zealand, um, uh, as opposed to these sort of insurance or safe haven uh, currencies of, say, Japan or Switzerland. That's kind of, in a, in a nutshell, our explanation for why we see this uh, historically observed carry trade, uh, risk premium or trick carry trade uh, profitability when we're, when we're looking at this range of, uh, of countries. So these were things that uh, um, were widely assumed and, and your paper just bore, bore this out. Uh, but what are some practical implications of your findings? How can people use this information you presented uh, in a practical way? Well, uh, I think um, you know, the key implication for sort of the practice of uh, asset management or uh, kind of global macro investing is recognizing that um, trading strategies in, uh, in uh, foreign exchange and currency markets are potentially much more closely intertwined with uh, investment in other asset classes and particular commodities. Uh, than is commonly uh, realized. I think um, uh, it's not kind of deeply ingrained in the philosophy of uh, many investment managers to uh, integrate asset classes as opposed to kind of treat them in isolation. And what our research shows is that at least when we're talking about 
these sort of global macro strategies of uh, investing in uh, currencies around around the globe, we have to realize that uh, exploiting, for example, the carry trade will uh, carry uh, along with it uh, an exposure to the global the global cycle and in, in particular to the commodity price cycle. Um, and now commodities have become a, a popular asset class of their own over the last decade or so, and there's great interest in investing in commodities. Uh, but a portfolio that is exploiting the carry trade on one hand and also is trying to uh, have exposure to commodities could be kind of overexposed to the risk that is contained um, in both of these uh, kind of on, on the face of a different, uh, different asset classes and different strategies, and uh, and one has to be careful to kind of not uh, not overload on that kind of global uh, commodity risk. So, what sets your research apart from other work in this area? Uh, well, the, I, I would say there are several um, several uh, the ways in which we are quite different from what has been. Uh, has been done in the sense that uh, we, I think, are the first, or certainly some of the first, to recognize uh, that when we model uh, countries um, in, in the global financial markets, we have to recognize that these countries are potentially quite different. Most of the research historically uh, that aims to understand risk premium in global financial markets or uh, kind of exchange rates typically looks at two countries that are identical uh, for all practical purposes, except that you know they're getting hit with different shocks in different points in time. What we're saying is that you have to recognize that countries are fundamentally different in their endowments, in the endowments of you know, natural resources as well as potentially human capital and, and technological differences that are very. Uh, kind of persistent and don't don't necessarily change uh, from year to year. And recognizing these differences can uh, can lead you to you know, draw uh, new insights about uh, kind of the long run behavior of these countries and the risk exposure of their currencies and so on. So, what will you do next as a follow up to this research? Uh, well, I, I'm uh, continuing uh, research in this area in uh, in several different uh, directions. Uh, one is understanding uh, the role of the shipping sector and kind of transmitting uh, transmitting of the global uh, global economic fluctuations between countries and how uh, how uh, the frictions in the shipping sector impact uh, trade between countries and and through trade. Uh, exchange rates and kind of relative prices of goods uh, in different countries. Uh, I'm also working more on kind of specific commodity markets, uh, kind of not necessarily in connection directly to exchange rates, but understanding better the connection of commodity prices to the macroeconomy. Uh, I have a uh, recent paper with one of the same co-authors, uh, Rob Rady, who was a, a working PhD student some year ago, as well as with a, with a different co-author, Eric Gillia, who is my colleague here at Wharton, understanding uh, the role of shale oil and uh, in the recent kind of shale uh, oil revolution in the U.S. and its contribution to uh, kind of, uh, the growth of the U.S. economy 
uh, over the last uh, last few years. So that does not directly touch on kind of international uh, international applications, although it does connect to this earlier research because uh, over these years the U.S. has shifted from being the net uh, uh, kind of a uh, commodity importer country to being a net commodity exporter country, simply because we're importing a lot less, uh, a lot less oil and much less natural gas, thanks to uh, shale gas boom, and actually start, starting now to export uh, natural gas and even oil, uh, and that would potentially change you know, the properties of, of U.S. Uh, U.S. economy from the sort of international. A macroeconomic standpoint as well. So we look forward to your next endeavor, but thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.